0: Court, la la courte.
1: Good morning. In the case of James Allen Anderson uh, and Diana Anderson, David Couture and Monica Couture for the appellant, James Allen Anderson. Uh, And then online, we have Christopher Boots and Danish Shaw for the respondent, Diana Anderson. Mr. Couture.
2: Thank you justices I will be making the majority of the submissions on behalf of the appellant today my hope is to leave my co-counsel approximately five minutes at the end she's going to be speaking to a couple of specific issues uh, particularly as we see um, some um, problems some contradictions in the appellate level decision that uh, we have obviously addressed in our factum but she's that she will speak on briefly I'm going to proceed with my argument in a slightly different order than it was outlined in the factum. I think the importance of talking about standard of review has sort of led me in that direction. I think particularly when it comes to discretionary determinations and the standard of review when looking at a a discretionary determination of a trial judge Um, from all of the case law we know that there's a fairly high standard of review here and an awful lot of deference is owed to the trial judge when it comes to not only discretionary determinations generally but family property determinations specifically with regard to family property a trial judge is in a very difficult position where they're balancing numerous discretionary d- determinations they're looking at a number of equitable provisions and very spec- very fact specific situations every situation is obviously quite different and the trial judge is the person who is in the best place to meet the witnesses see what is really happening and do a comprehensive analysis and at the end of the day make a decision A judgment that that trial judge has determined is fair weighing everything and looking at everything
3: well it isn't quite as free form as that is it I mean there is a statutory scheme and the and the discretion has to be exercised within that framework it isn't just tell me all about and at the end I'll tell you what I think is fair
2: no absolutely Uh, I agree with you Justice Rowe there are definitely a number of places where the discretion is either limited or guided and of course some of those are legislated and others are from the case law I I think uh, my my, uh, colleagues for the respondent would probably agree with me based on the factum that the two major cases we're looking at here in terms of previous case law are the case of Miglin and the case of Rickenbrand-Sema.
3: Now, who's, who gets
2: the edge
3: of...
4: I defer. Uh, oh, so... Uh, no.
5: Oh, no, go ahead. Oh. So, Mr. Couture, what, uh, here the Court of Appeal said that uh, a Miglin framework should have been uh, adopted to structure, if I may say, uh, the discretion of the trial judge. So, can you tell us, uh, because in your factum, you say, yes, it could have been used for a Section 38 agreement, but could not be used given the fact that here, uh, we were not dealing with the Section 38 agreement. But what's, what's wrong with using Miglin, the Miglin framework to structure the discretion to be exercised under Section 40? What
2: I would say is the, the case of Miglin is about so much more than just that test, just that framework that was pulled out of the Miglin decision. So much of Miglin as well as uh, the Rick and sema case was about protecting spouses and the way that I read both of those cases and that I think they've typically been applied is that they're adding an extra level of protection to an agreement that's already meeting the legislative requirements to an agreement that the um, all of the the boxes have been checked for the the relevant provision that we're looking at and then it's kind of a second look at it to say Okay, but we need to to go behind that, give it a double check, just make sure that this is still okay. I think the way that the Court of Appeal did it here was was sort of the opposite and they used those same tests not to say is this agreement one that shouldn't apply, but they applied it to a test, they applied the test to an agreement that doesn't yet apply to say well now it should apply. So, so I think it's sort of the opposite and that it, it kind of does the opposite of what I think this court intended in both Miglin and Brancima to, to add protections. But uh, counsel,
4: isn't there something more fundamentally different? In section 40, the discretion, and we, of course it's the legislature that's gonna tell us how to, the context of the whole of the statute's gonna tell us what that means, that discretion. That discretion is understood in a property division context which under section 20 and following requires the court to look backwards at the relationship at how the property was acquired over time and exercise its discretion in respect of a non-binding agreement as to whether that non-binding agreement should affect retrospectively the acquisition of property and, and the debts. In Miglin, however, where there was the, the, the it was not it was being the discretion in question was not in respect of property interest, but a spousal support interest as constrained by section 152 of the Divorce Act. The question was the effect of the agreement prospectively, going forward. The character of the discretion is different given the statutory context in both cases, which means to me that transposing the test of Miglin into the Saskatchewan legislation would do a disservice to legislative intent. Now the bigger question is, insofar as the legislature speaks to some of the Miglin concerns, independent legal advice, at at Section 38 in the Definition of interspousal Agreements, in Section uh, 20 through 24, the potentially unconscionable or unfair character of the agreements, to what extent can the Miglin principles serve as at least signposts for reading the the Saskatchewan legislation?
2: Thank you, Justice Kassir. I do agree with you that absolutely this should not just be taking this test and transposing it onto uh, a Saskatchewan Family Property Act agreement that we're looking at. But I I do think that through the case of Miglin and the case of Rick and Brancima generally, there were some really good general principles that we do need to be considering. We we do need to be thinking about, um, I would submit in any property agreement when it's being analyzed, specifically the ones about the nature of the relationship because very similarly to in the case of of Rick and Sima, this was an emotionally charged time in this separating couples relationship that we're looking at here and uh, I would say that this court in that Brancema case uh, didn't quite go as far as to say every case but most cases there's going to be some level of emotion that's involved that means we need to be treating these kinds of contracts different from a corporate contract or a uh, contract between you know say two business partners that there is a nature of the relationship generally that we do need to to think about and appreciate And, and I think Perhaps the Court of Appeal here, uh, when they were, they they made very brief reference to Rickenbrand-Sema, but I don't think that they accurately portrayed what Rickenbrand-Sema stood for in that respect. Their conclusion seemed to be that this court in Rickenbrand-Sema brought the Miglin analysis into property cases and that's sort of the end of their analysis about Rickenbrand-Sema, but I don't think that that's what it did. I think that they brought the principles from Miglin. They emphasize that those principles apply for all of these sort of marital contracts. Can I
1: can I ask you this? I mean, Miglin, Bransima, um, Hartsthorne have all recognized that in assessing the validity of a contract, the dom- you have to be mindful that in the domestic env- environment, be particularly mindful of vulnerability of, of the uh, need for disclosure of up to, to date information, the assistance of counsel, those are all things that are helpful just because of the special context of a domestic contract to assess the, um, um, whether the contract was, was made and whether, it, uh, whether there, there were any issues of vulnerability and so on. But the Court of Appeal went further here the Court of Appeal imported the framework which talks about onus, which talks about presumptive uh, application, and which talks about great weight. And I guess my question is, doesn't that in the end undermine the distinction between a Section 38 agreement and a Section 40 agreement and indeed the legislative framework that Saskatchewan has set out um, here for the Division
2: of Family property? I, I couldn't have said it better, Justice Kierkegaard. I, well, I, I guess that's agree. a better
1: question for your <laughs> friend. <laughs> but I, I guess what I was really getting at is that there are some aspects of Midland Brand which just recognize the reality of the need to be scrupulous in assessing the validity of the contract and whether it meets the objectives of the legislation, which is helpful, but that the framework itself uh, is a different matter.
3: Oh, absolutely, and, and I, I do um, So you're to... agreeing with my colleague, but I'm going to put a different position to you. I don't know if, if your agreement is going to be accompanied by a comment. I don't want to cut it off. If it is, otherwise, I'll put my question. Absolutely, please go ahead. Okay. Whether or not a contract is formed, it seems to me, is a question of ordinary contract law. Whether or not a contract meets the requirements of uh, an interspousal agreement in this instance as defined in the legislation is a separate question. It has to be a contract, but then it has to be formed in certain circumstances. I think it's clear that this agreement was not formed in those circumstances thus we are left with is this a contract at all uh, or is it an agreement to make an agreement in which case it it doesn't meet one of the ordinary uh, requirements for uh, contract formation binding contract if however it is a contract under ordinary contract law and it's not an interspousal contract then it becomes relevant to the exercise of authority under section 40 and here's where i'm kind of coming to the punchline. it seems to me it isn't a question whether it's valid because whether it's a valid contract is contract law it's the weight which it is to be given and the weight that it is to be given is properly considered by reference to Were people aware of the consequences of their actions? Were they aware of the circumstances of the other spouse? Were they in a position of, uh, or a time of personal turmoil? But to me, that doesn't go to validity. That goes to weight.
2: Well, certainly Justice Rowe. And I think my interpretation of section 40 and the use of the words, any agreement, actually would provide that it doesn't have to be a contract according to to normal contract law because certainly an agreement to agree is an agreement of sorts that i would say would fall under that that a judge could still consider of course it it would be on perhaps a narrower point it might be a smaller amount of weight but but i think that's what the trial judge did here was determine this is an agreement to agree but even an agreement to agree falls under section 40 because of the broad terms of any agreement.
1: The trial judge actually consider the agreement under section 40. When I read the reasons, and I'm looking in particular at um, towards the end, the the two paragraphs where he actually discounts the award by $8,000, what he was looking at there was really the delay that your client had in, in providing any notice that he was disputing the property arrangements in this agreement, of however you describe it, and that she was lulled into a sense of security and would otherwise have put in a claim at 2015. That's different from taking the terms of the agreement into consideration. So there's a, that's my question. And I think
2: under Section 40, you can take the existence of the agreement into consideration even without looking at the specific terms. Okay. And certainly my read of the entire case when you go through the in-depth analysis on Section 40 he had and then when he said that I am able to take the agreement into consideration pursuant to Section 40 and I'm in agreement with that approach he said that earlier on and then at the end when he said okay but now we turn to the agreement I agree he didn't mention section 40 again there but I I don't think that there's an easy other way to interpret it and surely the Court of Appeal even early on in their decision they even spoke to the fact that uh it was a that the trial judge had found that section 40 applied to allow him to do this they they kind of contradicted themselves later, as my co-counsel will speak on a bit more. And
0: and can I follow up there? I mean, it it seems to me the trial judge applied uh, the test in the Tether case, and the Court of Appeal also applied that same three-part test as to whether or not there is an agreement. So we would, I think, have to say that everybody was turning their minds to to whether or not there was an agreement. Um, I don't take you to be... um, uh, challenging the use of that three-part test to determine an agreement is
2: it it's a difficult a difficult one because that text is that test is created in a totally different context the existence i mean tether was a case where lawyers had been involved for a prolonged period of time and the whole idea was they needed to look at without uh without prejudice communications between counsel to determine if an agreement even existed and that part of why the the tether test includes that there needs to be consensus on all the essential terms is because in that context you need to have everything in the agreement covered you can't have just a partial agreement because there could still be litigation after allowing in without prejudice communications and there might have been some intention of compromise without reaching everything so i think it's a very specific type of agreement that is dealt with in tether which is why the trial judge said well no it's not that kind of agreement because we haven't gotten to the point of resolving the home or the household goods and in fact
3: this this is where i come back in i mean it's I mean, I find it odd that um, there's a specific set of rules that do not seem to me to conform to the ordinary common law rules as to the formation of a contract, which, which are being imposed here. I mean, I can have a contract to say, I have three disputes with you. We're going to deal with two of those disputes in this agreement and the third one we're going to put on a separate track what tether seems to be interpreted to say is that no you can't do that it has to be comprehensive and unless it's comprehensive it's it's not an agreement i don't understand that
2: so i i can sort of give you an idea of what it looks like in the saskatchewan context when those applications come up and it's usually the lawyers need to uh recuse themselves because they're going to be witnesses other lawyers come in and it's a fight about the existence of if there was a contract and you're saying we don't need a trial because everything is resolved without the necessity of a trial so i really don't think that it it's a test that makes a lot of sense the way that the Court of Appeal has brought it in into their analysis I I think the trial judge was was asked by the respondent to look at it and and went through the the boxes uh, and and whether or not given there was no counsel involved here that that's really the approach that that should be I'm not sure but in any event he found that it didn't apply
4: Can, can we answer Justice Rowe's question which I think is a key one by looking at the specific paragraphs of the trial judgment because I think we're gonna have to do that at the end of the day. And it'd be helpful to have your views on that. I'm at paragraphs 108 and following of the trial judgment. And I first observe, and, and my colleague Justice Martin noted tether, but the trial judge says the absence of legal representation of either party is troubling for him, not easily overlooked glaring absence, his last sentence, alone is sufficient to make the agreement unenforceable. That strikes me as wrong, r- respectfully stated. It, d- it makes sense under Section 38, where there's, there's this additional formality over and above, as Justice Rowe says, the ordinary law of contract, but it doesn't apply to any agreement, which incidentally, the statute, not just in Section 40, but in section 20 to 27 says any agreement should be taken into account. So that strikes me as wrong. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. And then I'd like to ask you, this idea of an agreement must be complete, whether we should be mindful of the fact that the Saskatchewan legislation has, like many rules across the country, special rules for the family home, recognizing that it's the homestead is a different kind of property value, special rules on possession, and it strikes me not altogether unreasonable that parties might defer that piece of property in an agreement to a later date when the issues around possession and entitlement to the household goods could be sorted out in a more meaningful way. So it strikes me that his second problem, alluded to at paragraph 109, is also fragile i'd like to hear you on both of those
2: no and and, and i I certainly hear your comment justice cassier and that that sentence about the absence of the independent legal advice alone makes it unenforceable Uh, i guess i'm not totally clear what he was saying in in that respect because he did conclude that that wasn't enough to to mean the agreement couldn't be considered under section 40 but I, i think as the standalone statement, uh, uh, the absence, I, I don't think that I agree that just not having legal advice would make any agreement unenforceable.
5: If we read paragraph 116, it seems to me after the judge uh, said, uh, referred to the absence of legal uh, advice and all of that, but at 116 it says, does the, that does not mean, however, that it cannot be taken into consideration at all in the final determination of the equitable distribution of family property and at the end he says that decision will be exercised based on the equities that are at play in the final analysis and in analyzing the equities at play it seems to me that the big dispute here as the judge said in paragraph one of its decision is the valuation date this is what makes the difference between the number awarded by the trial judge to Monsieur, and what the Court of Appeal awarded to Madame. Am I right or not?
2: The valuation dates are absolutely a very key piece of, of the difference to the puzzle here. Yes, uh, th- there's the two layers of the valuation date, certainly. So the the trial judge's decision valued most things as of the date of adjudication, which valued what you said. Valued most of the major property as of the date of trial which under the legislation he's permitted to do so he looked at the case law on that point and the reasons why in certain cases judges make those choices and I, I would say he was very consistent with what most judges if not all judges in Saskatchewan have been doing which is if the market value changes due solely to the m- or if the value changes due solely to the market then you use a date of adjudication value instead of a date of application value so so he certainly did that on those major assets. Now there is the valuation date difference for those few remaining assets there were there were certainly some things that he still valued as of the date of application which was the 2017 date instead of the 2015 date but fundamentally those were were smaller assets that had very minimal impact And I think that it makes sense in the context of it being such a small number that he chose $8,000 as a way to sort of compensate and adjust for that in his.
1: So so just to follow up, because I'm not sure I got complete answer to Justice Kasir's question, we have the trial judge conclude in paragraph 115 that this was not, there was no consensus at EDOM. There was no agreement. There was no kind of, to use Justice Rowe's uh, terminology, there was no valid contract at all. Correct. And then we don't see, even though he says he can take it into consideration, the only basis in which he takes it into consideration at the end is that the delay kind of lulled her into not including property in the initial application. But otherwise, the valuation day of trial okay thank you and and the, the Court of Appeals said that was wrong that was an error in principle and your position is that it was not an error in principle I I, I heard you say that you agreed that the absence of legal advice alone can't make it unenforceable
2: so when it comes to the the okay. consensus ad item question yeah I believe that the trial judge was correct on that particularly in light of cases like tether because the agreement did not deal with the home in any substantial way and did not deal with the household goods in any substantial way
0: and, and like Can we come back to the the fact that in Section 38 they're talking about something that appears larger, the interspousal kind of uh, contract that has a formality attached. But when we're looking at the word agreement in a statute, I can't read that as anything but a partial agreement, so that if the parties had, had agreed on nothing but the House, that might have been an agreement within Section 40 that could reasonably be taken into account, or any other things. So so why does it why is the trial judge allowed to focus on this notion of completeness, especially given that there's a severability clause, all right? But but why isn't agreement any agreement, any time the the components uh, of the meeting of two minds exists so that that is something that's off the property table in terms of a trial
2: and i think that's what the trial judge here did i I don't think that the trial judge did the same thing that the court of appeal did which was add consensus ad edom as a first step to get to section 40. i think he was looking at it as a on another line of another possible way of showing that there could be an agreement because at paragraph 116 he specifically says right afterwards that that does not mean however that I that it cannot be taken into consideration at all in the final determination of the equitable distribution of family property and then goes on to talk about section 40 and how it allows him to do that and how he's in agreement with doing that.
0: But isn't there a fundamental inconsistency between 115 and 116? He says it's not an agreement but under Section 40 I can take it into account. I would read Section 40 as saying when you have an agreement you must first establish an agreement and then um, you can take that established agreement into an account into account in a manner that's reasonable and so when I see those two paragraphs I think is there a disconnect there
2: and I I think if you read the first sentence from paragraph 108 it helps perhaps to clarify because the trial judge there says the agreement at issue here is not within the category of agreements recognized in tether and iverson So I think he was seeing it as a very specific category, a very specific type of agreement that does need all essential terms to be dealt with and that even though all essential terms were not dealt with, there there was still some type of agreement left that he was permitted to consider.
3: But isn't isn't that just confusing, uh, an existence of a contract with meeting the requirements of Section 38?
2: i i do think that it's a a, a bit of a u- unique line of cases certainly and a bit of a, a perhaps strange point in law that these types of agreements can be considered because it uh i think the general principle was if parties had come to an agreement even if they hadn't quite gotten into formalizing something in section 38 courts wanted a way to use Section 40 to uphold that agreement, but that they needed it to be completely comprehensive. That's at least what the Court of Appeal in Saskatchewan seems to have decided in Iverson and Tether.
4: But you didn't, um, in in response to Justice Rowe's initial question, what about the fact that the family home is a different kind of property under the act itself? So, sections four to seven have special rules for possession of family home or household goods, acknowledging that after the date at which the parties break up, there may be, children may be involved, that family home may continue to play a role in the joint economic endeavor that has come to a close, but the kids are still around, need a place to live. And importantly, section 22, that has a special rule on the distribution of the family home that departs from the, the general regulation of family property at large. It seems to me that what the spouses were doing with this agreement was treating the family home differently than all the other property, coming to an agreement on family property generally, and leaving the family home because of these complications to another moment. That doesn't seem to me to impugn the existence of an agreement in the sense of contract law, to say that there was no consensus ad edem when the ad edem was specifically everything but the family home. I I, I need need your answer on that one, because you you were kind to distance yourself from the conclusion about independent legal advice, but I think paragraph 108, in light of the conclusions, that there was no agreement in in the sense of a contract, for me, respectfully stated is problematic. And
2: I, I have had struggles myself with understanding and appreciating this line of case law. I would say that it is consistent with Tether because that's what happened in Tether was the one major thing that wasn't resolved was just household goods. And very similarly to in this case, the parties in Tether had said we're going to go to the House together and we'll bring a mediator and we'll get it worked out and then they couldn't and then the whole agreement fell apart. Now uh, I'm not going to to stand here and say that this court should confirm what Saskatchewan did in in Tether in in that appellate level decision. Um, I believe that what Justice Brown did was consistent with that at the trial level here. But uh, I certainly understand your, your point, Justice Kassir, that it, it does seem a little strange that, that there would be that requirement for all terms to be, to be addressed.
6: Do I have your, your point correctly, though, uh, in response to the questions you've been asked about the incompatibility between 108, 109, and then uh, what happens in 116? Essentially, as I take your argument, uh, whether the trial judge aired or not in uh, applying tether and finding the agreement was unenforceable under tether what he clearly did do was consider it under section 14 section 116 so any error is inconsequential the fact is he did consider it and section 40 uh, authorizes the trial judge to give the agreement whatever weight it considers reasonable that discretion may be informed by the miglin uh, branzima types of considerations recognizing we're not in a commercial context we're in a family context where emotions are fraught and, and so on, those sorts of considerations can apply. But any error as to whether there was a consensus at Edem really becomes inconsequential in light of 116. Is that the gist of what you're saying?
2: That, that is certainly the, the gist of it, Justice Strammall, yes. I, I think that the, both the Court of Appeal and the trial judge got to using section 40 perhaps slightly differently. But at the end of the day, they both determine section 40 applied. Mr.
5: So can Couture, I oh, go ahead. Mr. Couture, I'll come back to the evaluation date. Sometimes the judge use date of trial, and other times we have date of adjudication or adjudication date, which is the, the term used in the, in the statute. Do you make a difference between the trial date and the adjudication date?
2: No, I, I see those as synonymous. That, that, it that is was synonymous one.
5: because here the values uh, used by the trial judge uh, were the values that he had at trial because we know that it took uh, many months to, to give his decision. So, but the values are the ones uh, existing at trial.
2: Correct, because I, I think it's that they were the the ones closest temporally that you know, the most recent evidence he could possibly have in order to to make a determination.
1: Okay, so can I I come back to Justice Jamal's question? Accepting the law as he stated it, um, I'd like to take you to paragraphs 277 and 278, which is where the trial judge um, says he's taking the agreement into consideration. And um, uh, although he doesn't mention section 40, let's assume, that's what he's doing. Um, How does he take it into consideration? He says that the impact of the agreement had the effect of lulling Diana into a sense that the property issues had crystallized to a certain extent so she did not have to pursue a petition for that reason which strikes me as a little inconsistent with some of the earlier findings but then when I look at paragraph 278 The the discount is for the additional expense and consternation. It brings me back to my original question to you, which is how did he take the agreement into consideration? Um, Did he take the contents of the agreement? What seems to be an agreement that they'll each keep their own property, except for the home, which has to be dealt with in a different track? Did he take the content of the agreement into consideration at
2: all? um nor justice character i don't think that he did and i don't think that he intended to given all of the factors he considered and, and weighed in looking at why generally speaking it was necessary to do a full property distribution however uh, i would say he was cognizant of the fact that there were those few items that did change in value between the date of the initial petition and then the date of counter-petition and they weren't very high in value but there were some slight changes it was perhaps to compensate yeah, for that. I,
1: I guess the way it works out in this case is that all delays worked in favour of your client. The business value was going down and the house value was going up. So all delays starting back to the date of the agreement right through to trial, were always working in favour of your client.
2: Uh, cer- certainly that things did move in that direction where they were benefiting the, the husband more than the wife and i think that there being some some delay that the the husband was being attributed with the trial judge was trying to to find some way of of making a, a bit of an equitable adjustment one that he thought was appropriate uh, under his discretion and in all of the circumstances i
3: i i you know After 280 paragraphs, however, I can't figure out what the heck was going on. Um, More sometimes isn't helpful. Um, I mean, first the trial judge says, this isn't an agreement and I'm looking at tether, which I think is sort of odd. But anyway, so it's not an agreement. Then he takes it into account. But then in taking it into account, he doesn't pay any attention to it. I mean, the whole thing is like, who's on first, what's on second? Um, And and the real core of the uh, the agreement is, I think, in paragraphs three and four, where basically, other than some very specific items like the truck and a small amount of money for uh, fencing, basically says everybody keeps what they've got, and, and, and then a little later on it says we'll sort out the house later. We didn't do that. I mean, the, the you know the main asset, other than the value of the house, was the value of the uh, the business that Alan had, and as opposed to being taken out of play, which is what three and four paragraphs three and four of the agreement would have done, it's left in play, and we're left with what is being presented in many ways as as a dispute with respect to the valuation date for the business, whereas. The, the question that it seems to me logically precedes that is, is Is the value of the business in play at all? Or was it taken out of play by paragraphs three and four? And it gets curiouser and curiouser, as Alice said, uh, when you get to the Court of Appeal. Because they say, oh, We're going to give effect to the agreement, and then they pay no attention to the three and four. I mean, I am completely baffled as to what is going on.
2: Oh, and I, I think it section 40 is an interesting section certainly I, I would say it's a section that gives an awful lot of discretion to to the trial judge here uh, gives him the discretion to not have considered the agreement at all if he chose as much but also the words whatever weight the court thinks reasonable I, I think is very broad and I would argue certainly that whatever weight could mean that he doesn't have to consider the terms, that he could simply consider that there was some type of an agreement signed, therefore uh, a small amount of weight based just on the fact that that one document was signed even though both parties very quickly seemed to appreciate it was never going to be, be upheld and that they weren't going to follow it and right away started Exchanging disclosure and and dealing with with matters through through the courts and and through the disclosure process. Uh, so I, I would say under section forty, I don't think the terms have to be applied, and that there's other ways to give the agreement weight, while recognizing that the terms themselves shouldn't apply.
4: Here's a question that might uh. actually help your argument. So oh, sorry, did you did, no? I, just uh, it'll be quick. I. I Sec- Section 40 speaks of any agreement verbal or otherwise Which is surprising when you compare it to I don't know if you have the act here 21 uh, Subsection 3a Which in the in connection with the distribution of family property, which is of course what we're dealing with here um, Says any written agreement can be used to depart from, so my question is, and this may help your position, I don't know, is the kind of agreement spoken to at section 40 different than the kind of agreement spoken to at 213 which justifies a departure from equal, equal division. We know that interspousal agreements Exempt property from equal division, but I'm what I, like. Why is it a written agreement? At this in in the key part of the act, and in section forty, this slightly weird provision that departs from. Sorry, weird is not maybe not very juridical term. Um, that departs from section thirty-eight. Why is it all of a sudden verbal? What, do you do you understand that? So I. I would say that there are
2: perhaps different powers under both sections, that section 40 gives even more ability to the judge looking at it to do something different, whereas under uh, section 21, it's more looking specifically at uh, an unequal distribution, so kind of changing the, the ultimate payout Uh, I think in in this case he probably could have used either section Um, I think section 40 would allow for for example to also make an order for interim exclusive possession of a home where I I don't think uh, section 21 would Uh, there's probably some more things that it um, it would be able to to cover as well
0: I had an initial follow-up question to Justice Casario's first question about kind of the, the house and, and it seems to me when we're looking at general principles, uh, something that's very important as to whether or not there is or is not an agreement under Section 40 will be disclosure. Um, that's one of the principles of Midland, if I think that you would say should be imported, in terms of the, 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 the overall um, uh, fairness of the, and, and so when I look here, Uh, at this agreement, um, they didn't know the valuation of the house. They were postponing the house because they didn't have a figure to deal with. But on the disclosure part, there seems to be a difference between the trial judge and the court of appeal as to the extent of the knowledge perhaps that exists between the Andersons about about that. And, And I'm very interested in the role of disclosure um in respect of these agreements so could you help me out both factually in terms of the difference between the trial judge and the uh and the court of appeal on 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 the state of disclosure and where you see disclosure how important do you see it um in the um assessment of whether or not there's an agreement
2: um absolutely um, i'll start with the legal piece of it if that's okay yeah. i think that one major thing that this court's decision in Rickenbrand-SEMA did was emphasize the importance of disclosure when you're looking at the same kinds of agreements you look at under Miglin and that the it it was very close to if not being a rule that there needed to be full and honest disclosure in these kinds of situations Uh, we're obviously dealing with a a situation here where factually I don't think uh, it, it can really be disputed that there was no disclosure What the Court of Appeals seemed to say was the parties knew what each other had at the time of marriage a few years ago so that's enough because they 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 could figure it out but I, I I but
0: the trial judge goes on and says they didn't really know the extent of the assets I mean the trial judge does make a different statement there and that I I read that statement as not just applying to the house
2: absolutely and I think that when you're looking at the state of the assets and, and I think the trial judge uses the words crystal clear in terms of his view of the fact that the parties didn't know what each other's assets were worth. And for family property purposes, it's not just the existence of a pension that matters, it's the value of the pension. And in particular, the amount that that pension increased during the period of the marriage. And those are all of the important pieces and the, the aspects of the disclosure that were, uh, I, I think, very necessary here but none of that had been exchanged and the parties didn't know what that was and it seemed to be more than anything the court of appeal sort of sloughed that off and said it doesn't matter it's close enough they they had some idea before and i i don't really understand their their view of it but but it's also i would say a factual determination that they made they didn't really make any reference to any palpable and overriding error on the trial judge's part that that would allow them to to overturn that factual determination that the trial judge made. I think along with disclosure it's vitally important to to not de-emphasize the way that I think the Court of Appeal here did the idea of independent legal advice and while I I don't know that I am standing for this the statement that the trial judge seems to have made that that on its own is enough to to make an agreement unenforceable I I think that's one of the major principles from uh, both Miglin and Brancima that it it is necessary to, to to be taken into consideration whether or not that's happened.
1: I'm trying to um, piece together what the court of, why the Court of Appeal did what it did in accepting the 2015 dates. And I'm wondering if the issue around disclosure and the issue of, around the increase of, of pension and, and, and the value of the various properties um, kind of justify picking the 2015 date as the date she would have put in a claim for property division, but for the silence uh, on, the, on the part of, uh, of your client. But does that, how does that deal with the house?
2: I don't think it, it does, uh, Justice Sanis, I, I think that's the big problem here, is that even if 2015 was the date that she had claimed property on her petition, and that would have become the presumptive date of application, The trial judge whenever it went to trial would have still been able to choose date of trial values for anything but also within that agreement itself it it certainly didn't say that the house was going to be valued Uh, as an earlier date so
1: and is my recollection correct that he paid the mortgage his share of the mortgage payments right up to trial correct and taxes was stopped sometime earlier
2: believe in 2017
1: 2017 okay
4: Let's say this court comes to the view and we've heard your argument but we come to the view that the trial judge was mistaken in deciding that this was not an agreement and that we should give the agreement as an agreement greater weight than he gave it and we acknowledge that by hewing close to the terms of the the agreement, the trial, the, the a a judge would not know what date would be used to evaluate the house what date should be chosen and why the
2: the date of adjudication i believe the date of trial which are the numbers that the trial judge did use in the end but if we're just isolating it i would say those are definitely the values because it's a mortgage value as of that date And the husband had continued to pay the mortgage right up until then. And it's a real estate value as of that date. And neither party was responsible for the changes in the real estate market in in that period of time. Both of them had their equity invested in it. So there's no reason why one over the other should be benefiting from that.
4: uh, This is a question not, not not to try and challenge you or anything, but could you not argue that given the... The fact that the parties intend if you read the contract intended the family home to be disposed at at a later date why should we settle on the 2015 date seems to be not in keeping with with what the parties wanted to do um,
2: no, no we, sh- we should not settle on the 2015 date I, I think the the date when they actually had a valuation was presented to the trial judge as of the date of trial which was in uh, 2018 and the the mortgage as of that date which included both payments from both of them is if we're following the agreement then that is certainly what's most in line with the agreement.
4: So notwithstanding the fact that they want they didn't specify what that later date is you find that that's I guess fair and equitable is that is that the exercise of discretion that that justifies that
2: I I think so and also I think it's an issue that would have had to go to trial anyway regardless of if that agreement was upheld in its entirety the only way and I disagree with the Court of Appeal on this the Court of Appeal said there was an objectively verifiable method of determining the value of the, the home and determining how it would be dealt with but the problem is that agreement says if the parties can't reach an agreement they'll go to mediation in in tether itself there was a similar mediation clause that was found to not be an objectively verifiable method but also I I think as we can all appreciate if parties go to mediation that might not resolve the issue so if they couldn't come to an agreement in mediation they were heading to trial anyway and yes it it could have been any later date potentially there's a lot of gray area in, in that wording, uh, and I think that's part of the problem is the wording's not totally clear, but I think the only way to be in line with the Family Property Act and the idea of equal distribution of the family home and equal distribution of what both of them have contributed would be to use the most current values that were available.
5: Oh Mr. Couture, in paragraph 262, the judge said that uh, it was agreed to by the parties uh, that the value of the house was the family home uh, would be $417,000 and this is the value at the date of adjudication. But the agreement was just pertaining to the value at, uh, of the house at that date and the agreement did not go as far to accept the date of adjudication as being the value to be used, right?
2: I, I believe so, yes. the
5: yeah.
1: Next paragraph, the, the value I think that he actually ascribes in the end to the home is 81,765, Because that's the equity?
2: Correct, yes.
1: Okay, Um, can I bring you back to the issue of disclosure, which continues to trouble me? We have two different statements, one from the trial judge, one from the Court of Appeal. Can you tell me, is this an issue that was raised by your client at trial, that there was inadequate disclosure, um, that um, he was uh, unaware of the, uh, value of the assets is this? Was this a live issue at trial?
2: It, it, it was the the entire circumstances of the signing of the agreement were a live issue, and seeing it as a factor to be considered that he he didn't know what things were worth. There there was no negotiations that occurred here, and and I think that that's an important the the negotiations and the duration of negotiation is a factor in miglin that's referenced and even the Court of Appeal mentions it too as one of the considerations in the test but there was no n- duration of negotiation the, the parties signed this agreement at the end of a reconciliation meeting effectively at the end of the relationship so they, they hadn't exchanged anything there, there was no not only disclosure exchange but also no offers or, or any ability to, to come to terms on a contract
3: there's doctrinal haze that hangs over this um let me give you an example and it isn't the facts of this case counsel often say often say well that's nice judgment it's not the facts of this case but i'm only giving you the example to try to bring out a doctrinal point let's say that uh, two people are splitting up and they just got to deal with a truck okay if you give me $10,000 $10,000 I'll sign over my interest in the truck and you know so now we dealt with the truck because they need to deal with the truck right because who gets the truck is kind of an immediate thing if you, if you kind of look at that to the tether point of view that's not an enforceable contract well, why isn't it an enforceable contract I mean it looks like one to be uh, but you know in this tether point of view you can't That's unenforceable. It seems to me the better answer is that it would be an enforceable contract, but that the court is authorized under section 21 of the uh, statute to make an order which is inconsistent and which in effect overrides the contract. In other words, In in, in terms of the authority given to the court, it can make an order for the distribution of family property, period. And to the extent that this constituted family property, they can say, well, yeah, you you, you agreed to do it that way, but no, in in the overall sorting out of things, we're gonna make an order of a different nature. But in the absence of an order from the court which overrides the contractual arrangement I don't see why the contractual arrangement to sort out the truck would be invalid.
2: So I would say under the Saskatchewan legislation for it to be presumptively binding, that agreement would still need to meet the terms of Section 38 for it to, uh, to be presumptively binding. But it would fall under Section 40. I would say regardless, we, we shouldn't need to do a tether analysis to get to
3: Section 40 for that and then so you're telling me that two people who have a practical arrangement to deal with what happens to the truck is has to meet the formalities of section 38 or it's nothing like it's it's a complete failure i mean that's i mean that's one way to read the the, the legislation but i think it's a very odd way i i'm certainly not
2: seeing that justice Rowe. i i think in, in that situation, that agreement would probably hold up, and the, the, those parties' lawyers would likely be advised to tell them there aren't all of these factors that would weigh against it holding up. I think the trial judge here, it, it was he, that he determined it fell under Section 40, but in light of all of the numerous factors about the duration of the negotiation and the emotionally charged situation between the parties at that time the the lack of independent legal advice the lack of disclosure it was all of those factors that were necessary to say that this agreement wasn't going to be binding under section 40 but that uh, it doesn't mean that it it wouldn't be considered under under section 40 regardless and that other situations i think very commonly those agreements could still be be fully upheld on their terms Based on Section 40. I know
0: your time is running out, but Madam Chair, may I just ask uh, one uh, kind of closing question from my part and that, and that relates to again the date of evaluation. Um, many provinces have very different rules about how they evaluate property uh, based on their acts or their own jurisprudence. In Saskatchewan, is there something that would stand in the way of a court saying, that it's the petition date for the things that were in the agreement and the trial date for the house because the house itself was going to be done at some future time when an evaluation would be done is that is there mix and match that goes on in Saskatchewan And would this be somehow an unfair approach
2: no I don't think that that would be unfair at all I think that would be a common approach for a case like this, and uh, it, it's something that would be, would be available to, to, to be done if the, the data petition had claimed property distribution in it. That's, I think, where there's that complicating factor here, where it didn't.
1: But taking, could you use Section 40, taking into account the agreement to move the date, to take the 2015, Um, uh, initial application date values in part as the court of appeal did but look at the trial judge's value um, of the home at trial?
2: I I think it it could theoretically be possible but I I do think in that situation it's totally inconsistent with those terms of the agreement because it, it it does do something different than the agreement. So if the focus is we need to respect the contractual autonomy of the parties and uphold the agreement it, it, it does cause problems when you're using the agreement to, to shift the date in that way and, and i'm not sure why or if that would be, be the best situation um now uh just character samus i apologize I, I know i'm out of time i was hoping that my co-counsel might have a few minutes just to briefly make a couple of points perhaps three minutes if that's okay
1: yes thanks. thank you, thank you. We'll give your friend an extra three minutes as well if they wish.
2: Thank you.
7: Good morning, Justices. Uh, As my co-counsel already noted, my brief submissions this morning will focus on the contradictions made by the Court of Appeal in their application of Section 40 of the Family Property Act. These issues have already been discussed this morning in response to questions from the court, so my submissions will be very brief. Uh, The Court of Appeal, using their discretionary powers, uh, did something that was dramatically different from the outcome that would have been... Uh, awarded if the agreement had simply been applied. Uh, This seems specifically in contrast to their previous decision at paragraph 120 of the written reasons in which they confirmed that there was no reason for the agreement not to govern. The agreement was actually quite simple in terms of leaving only the family home and household goods to be divided. Uh, If, as the Court of Appeal previously concluded, the presumption from the legislation That these items be divided equally was sufficient to fill any gaps in the agreement which did not specifically state how the household goods and the home would be divided then the only way for the agreement to have actually been given great weight would have been for each party to retain all of their other assets as required by the agreement uh, and the home and the household goods would have then been divided equally therefore it can be concluded From this, that the Court of Appeal did not respect the contractual autonomy of the parties or the negotiated terms of the agreement, uh, as the ultimate outcome bore no similarity to the provisions of the agreement unless there are any questions from the court, these are my submissions. Oh, I do have a question and it just brings up a confusion I had. The trial judge has
0: two sets of valuations and in the first set of valuation, comes up with the exact same number that the Court of Appeal actually uses in their final assessment. Explain that to me based on what you've just said there Uh, because it seems to me that there's an inconsistency there.
7: Uh, There does seem to be an inconsistency uh, if we were looking at what the agreement actually would would result in, the household goods could and were valued by the trial judge, uh, the house also had multiple values as was previously discussed by my co-counsel, we would suggest that the trial date was the appropriate value Uh, So the numbers are dramatically different when we actually break down what the agreement would have stated.
0: But aren't they dramatically different because of the valuation date? It seems to me when I do the on which side of the ledger, Both the first assessment of the trial judge and the one eventually adopted by the court of appeal really are based on uh, splitting up like the pre-marital property and just dividing, um, you know, the the very basics there. Um, So I I don't know. I'm I'm at a bit of a loss as to what the differences would be between them. What do you say, okay, if it take, take the marital, uh, or take any agreement out, what would be the valuation then? What, what would the difference be? Because I couldn't really figure that out.
7: We would suggest that the trial judge correctly decided when looking at the individual assets and valued some of them as of the date of counter petition, which was the date of application pursuant to the Family Property Act, and then divided other assets as of the date of adjudication uh, due to they had increased due to market forces. Can
1: I just clarify one thing? You said that the um, Court of Appeal um, did not implement the agreement. Do I take it that implementation of the agreement in your submission would have been to take the trial value of the house, which is about $82,000, and split that in half equalize Yes, sir, that.
7: it, that's essentially it there okay. also was i a value just
1: wanted to be clear yes. thank you thank you thank you yeah the court's going to take a 15 minute recess
2: The cool.
1: I understand that um, Mr. Shaw will be going first, and just to note, we've automatically added the three minutes to your time.
8: Thank you. Good good morning, justices. So, I, I will be handling the issue of the standard of review and the Miglin analysis to section 40 of the Family Property Act of Saskatchewan, uh, and my friend will be dealing with the departure from the terms of the agreement and occupational rent. So the starting point in, all, in, in the entirety of this case, the way I see it, is the one of validity of the 2015 agreement. So both parties have a clear divergence on the validity of the agreement and, and specifically the interpretation of the agreement. Because one party saying the validity of the agreement is, is based against the backdrop of legislation section 40, And the common law test set out in Tether and Iverson. Now, I'd like to let this court know that the seminal authority in in Saskatchewan for for what would constitute um, as an agreement, uh, and that has been applied under Section 40, is Tether and Iverson. Um, And because the trial judge specifically ruled that the agreement before the court did not meet the requirements set out in Tether and Iverson, the agreement between the parties was not considered a binding agreement. And binding agree- agreement in the sense of the common law. Uh, if you turn to the condensed book of. That, Euphorie- that,
3: that, I, I, I'm completely baffled by what you just said. Yes. The rules as to what constitutes an agreement or a contract or a common law are mm. not as reflected in tether. They're different. Now, if you're telling me that in the interpretation, of uh, the the, uh, Family Property Act of Saskatchewan, the courts have said that only an agreement which has certain characteristics, i.e. those set out in tether, will be considered in the exercise of discretion under section 40. I understand that. I'm not sure whether that's a proper way in which to operate within the legislative framework, what is to me incomprehensible is to say that the, the laws of contract are as set out in tether, but, but, but that cannot be a general proposition. At the most, it can be a proposition, as I said, that says, for in order to be considered under Section 40, uh, a contract must have certain characteristics, which characteristics are described in tether, because they're not described in the legislation.
8: Thank you. So, w- what I take that to mean is, the the issue that we have is in Tether and Iverson, the the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal has set out three principles that that must be followed in order to find that there is a binding agreement, a- and those principles are set out in in paragraph forty one of the appeal decision. So, it 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 it, it forces it forces everyone to embark on three separate lines of inquiry to come to a determination, whether or not, not in terms of all contracts, but whether or not a specific family law agreement can be found to be binding. But is there any
0: difference between, I mean, at one level, when we look at that paragraph, it's a a restatement of, of the contract rules. You have to, one, have a meeting of the minds. Well, yes, there needs to be consensus. Uh, Mm -hmm. Offer and acceptance have to match. Two, there needs to be consensus on the essential terms, Mm -hmm. and you can't have vague or imprecise agreements. Um, That's just the common law contract provision or or, uh, principle of certainty of terms and then on the other ones, it can't be conditional. Well, that just means that there needs to be agreement to the terms and it's not subject to any form of condition, subsequent precedent or whatever. So it seems to me that these are are just a, a restatement perhaps of what would otherwise go into an assessment of what is an agreement. But what I don't understand is the application about that you need all essential terms of the agreement. I think you need all essential terms of an agreement, but the agreement is, is seems to be a problem here because what it's suggesting in terms of interpretation is you cannot have an agreement under Section 40 unless you have a full agreement with everything determined. And that can't possibly be what Section 40 is designed for when you look at its, pl- its wording and its place in the statutory scheme. So, uh, So, I I mean, I I don't understand, I guess, uh, or or what's your submission on the second element there, which seems to have led the trial judge into some error about the difference between a possibility of an agreement on particular property and the agreement, which um, some people are suggesting needs to be something that avoids a complete trial, which doesn't, doesn't make sense to me under contract law.
8: The, the terms of Tether say what they say, and, and we certainly can't go back and and, and change that. Well, but we, as we far can. As,
1: <laughs> we can. So I think you have to answer the question.
8: <laughs> so so if you if we look at the formulation of the test in paragraph 58 of the Court of Appeals decision, the Court of Appeal says they, they, they reformulate Tether in a better way, so to speak. So if you look at what, what they say as in paragraph 58 as to what the test is, they say there's a meeting of the minds. Uh, is there a consensus on essential terms of the agreement? And, and that's loosely worded. And then does, is, the, uh, you know, are, is the agreement intended to be conditional upon and subject to some other conditions being met? So I, I think the Court of Appeal does clarify uh, the question being asked because it's it's consensus on, on 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 essential terms. And and there can be some essential terms, but you know, certainly you can say, well, certain terms are essential and certain terms are not. So the the primary issue that we, we ran into when, when the court of, um, when the trial judge started off as analysis, if if you if if you if you look at the application and analysis that the trial judge makes. Uh, and this is in paragraph 108, tab one of the, our condensed book of authorities. The the entirety of, of of his analysis starts off with tether, and then if you go all the way to paragraph 117. it concludes that it's because the agreement between the parties was not a binding agreement as considered by Tether, therefore he's gonna basically give it less weight. So this is the primary issue of divergence between the trial judge and the court of appeal, because the trial judge finds that the agreement didn't meet the requirement of Tether and Iverson, and therefore it reduces the value and weight of the agreement in his subsequent application of section 40. And, and that and that's really the issue that the court of appeal is grappling with.
1: Can I can I ask you um, what was your position at trial? Um, I understand that you wanted the agreement to be implemented, but what was your but was your position that the what did that entail?
8: What our, our was your position, position
1: with respect to the house in particular?
8: Okay, the position of uh, uh, our position at trial with respect to. I, I can comment on what our position was in in in, in regards to the agreement between the parties, uh, and it's set out in paragraph 96, 97, 98 of the trial de- uh, decision, and which was simply an implementation uh, of an application of tether, and for the parties to follow through on on the agreement. Um, as as far as the house is concerned, um, the agreement in itself speaks. To the value of of the house and and the divisions are 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 clearly articulated in the agreement. I, I think my friend can speak. Not sure I
1: understand what that means. You said that you wanted the agreement to be implemented, but enforced. what did that mean in terms of numbers? What was your position at trial?
8: Our, our position at trial was our position at trial was for, for the house to be sold in accordance with the, or, or divided in accordance with the terms of the agreement. Uh, that's what our position was.
5: Yeah, but in the agreement, uh, when we look at paragraph six of the agreement, uh, you see that uh, th- it says only that uh, there will be a real estate evaluation of the mm-hmm. house will be performed, but we don't have any uh, specification about the valuation date. Which will be used for the house. And uh, and, of, and if there cannot be an agreement, then there will be mediation. We don't have more we do not have more specific details right. about the house. So what did you say, what did you want at trial to go back to the question of my colleague the, what regarding was, the house? Yeah, what was the I,
8: order I you this. requested? We wanted December twenty fifteen to be the date. December twenty fifteen was to be the date because there's ample information to suggest that there was correspondence between the parties where miss anderson was trying to purchase the house and and that's what she was trying to do so the submission that was made was She wanted the agreement to be enforced based on the December 2015 So what
5: what was the purpose of uh, the husband continuing to pay the mortgage uh, payments on the house until trial, if he would have agreed to have the house valued as at uh, 2015?
8: That that is an issue that my friend will be dealing with, um, and maybe if he can jump in and, and speak to that issue. No, I'm not, but but that that specific question refers to occupational rent and the advancement of occupational rent.
5: No, I'm not talking about the additional rent. The additional rent was a claim by the husband to the wife. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about the fact that Monsieur continued to make the mortgage payments and his share of the, the taxes until trial, until summer of 2017, so I'm trying to understand the rationale uh, for uh, valuation of the house as at uh, 2015.
8: I, I think the simple a- answer is because because there was an understanding that she wanted to purchase the house in December of 15, and because those issues were were ignored, and and finally. Because the entirety of the agreement was challenged, uh, I, I think the submission was there was additional costs that were incurred by Ms. Anderson, and therefore, because the additional costs that were inf- incurred in order to enforce the agreement, the valuation date should be uh, the 2015 date. Right,
3: with no accounting for uh, his contributions after that, which just again, you know, there's baffling incontinuities here.
5: Uh, Was it not evidence that um, the parties decided not to deal with the house at the time of the agreement because the real estate market was not that good and this is the reason for which they decided to wait later?
8: Yes, that's correct. And and that's absolutely correct. And, and, And certainly, shortly following the reason why this was in the agreement was because of this reason but the evidence of, of Ms. Anderson was shortly afterwards, she, she did try to purchase the house to, you know, for the purpose of finality, to, to close the agreement between the parties. And those overtures were, 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 were denied by Mr. Anderson.
4: I, I think the problem that my colleagues are raising is that the, the December 2015 date, quite apart from occupational rent, appears to provide your client with a windfall for the amount of the mortgage payments, which not only st- in, the, in the context of f- fair division of family property st- strikes one as unfair, but it also seems to fly in the face of the substance of the agreement where there's no basis for that. And as m- my colleague points out, if the parties were inclined to put off the sale of the house because the market wasn't good or they weren't ready to, 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 to divide it at, at, at the moment they signed the agreement. Um, that's unfair. And it's unfair both ways, both under the, in the spirit, the substantive compliance with the statute and it's also unfair in, under the terms of the agreement. I think you need to answer that question.
8: I, I, I will absolutely agree that in either scenario there is some unfairness there and, and and this is why the issue of finality largely comes into play because if because clearly at the time of the 2015 agreement the parties were largely equal if, if i can use that word in in their in their financial affairs the the, firm, the agreement was was provided an equal division to both parties now the one- The one thing is while if we look at the later date of twenty seventeen, yes, you know there is a windfall to you can characterize that as a windfall to miss Anderson, but at the same time there's also a windfall to Mr. Anderson because his circumstances have certainly changed, so it 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 becomes it becomes difficult when when parties reach an agreement, but then the challenging of the agreement is two years later and, and one is lulled into a false sense of security that an agreement exists because then no actions are taken. So this is a difficult factual scenario because in either, in either timeline, one party, for the lack of a better word, is getting the shorter end of the stick, right? But had, had the agreement been strictly complied with, based on let's say the 2015 dates and and Miss Miss Anderson's overtures were not denied then there would have been equality largely equality between the parties so there's also the issue that you know why did Mr Anderson wait so long did he specifically wait so that you know his fortunes would dwindle and and that's the way i kind of see it and and and, and, and maybe this goes on to my second point, but one of the, one of the issues that was raised um, w- when my friend was making submissions was the issue of disclosure between the parties. But the, the issue of the disclosure at the time of trial was largely a moot issue at trial, because if we look at... Um,
0: I don't think the issue was disclosure at trial. I think the issue of disclosure related to when parties are are formulating an agreement that doesn't qualify under Section 38 but may qualify under Section 40, what level of disclosure should a court be looking at to see whether or not there can be an agreement? I think by the time the trial happened, we we saw everything came out and the trial judge had
8: no problem giving
0: uh, uh, values to everything.
8: Right. Thank you. Um, but if we look at tab two of the condensed book, um, it's in paragraph 105 and 106. Th- the primary issue Mr. Anderson is raising with the agreement is the lack of independent legal advice and consensus at Edom. And, and the lack of legal advice in relation to Tether. He's not specifically raising the issue of, well, I don't have financial dislo- disclosure, because if, if that was an issue, then, then more of the judge's trial judge's decision would have been focused on that. But the majority of the trial judge's decision is slowly focused on the lack of independent well, legal I'm advice. I'm sorry, and the trial I judge said
1: them. that there wasn't full disclosure and counsel said this was a live issue at trial. Are you saying that it was not? The trial judge I, I dealt with the issue of disclosure at the time of the agreement and made a finding.
8: Right, that's correct, but but there's also certain things that are, are, are heart of the issue and, and a secondary issue. So the heart of the issue and the heart of Mr. Anderson's submission was, well, because I didn't have legal counsel, I wasn't fully aware Uh, of of my rights and obligations to collect information and so on and and that was the basis so it wasn't that oh i i'm I'm not aware of what's happening i'm sorry
1: are you saying that he did not raise the issue of lack of disclosure forget about primary or secondary was it a live issue at trial
8: i I think it was a secondary issue and and if i can have you turn to paragraph 105 and 106 the, the court reiterates what Mr. Anderson is advocating as to his issues with the agreement. So the if we look at paragraph 105, the the primary issues are what Mr. Anderson is, is advocating, right? I'm, I'm not saying financial disclosure is not an issue but financial disclosure through the lens of having legal counsel to advocate for financial disclosure
4: but look at paragraph 113 of the trial judgment the parties had no real idea of the extent of each other's assets a matter that became crystal clear at trial i mean come on you know it looks looks like it was pretty you say it's secondary we've got the trial judge who says that it was primary for him. He put it right in there in his evaluation of, of the agreement. I mean, right. you might argue, and I could understand this argument that, well, the trial judge erred. there was an agreement under section 40, but the issue as is to the weight it should be given maybe should take into account some of the f- failings I mean, what, one way to read the relationship between Section 40 and Section 38 is to say, Section 38 builds on the law, ordinary law of contract by assigning uh, a determinative role to certain formalities that are not required in the ordinary, you know the great Lon Fuller argument on consideration and form. That, so you, you add to that, for example, Independent legal advice and when that's absent you don't have a interspousal agreement you have an agreement Under the ordinary law of contract and then you inquire well How much weight should I give it and then you go down the road of saying well? You know the absence of independent legal advice the absence of disclosure and the like that'll impact on the weight that I give it so in our case maybe, and you'll I may be wrong here, but is this one way to look at it? The judge made a mistake. There was an agreement under Section 40. But his assignment of weight, in the end of the day, means that that mistake actually wasn't all that important because he assigned, ironically enough, more weight to the meeting of the minds of the parties than it seems that the Court of Appeal did. Thank you. I think you're right
8: on the issue of weight, because the way I read section 40, I read section 40 as a two-part analysis of, first, the court must satisfy itself of an agreement between spouses that's not an interspousal contract. And then a secondary part is, once you have an agreement, then you have to make a determination on weight. So the issue of, of, of the disclosure is, is more of a weight issue, right? Because even if you look at Tether in itself and the application of Tether, the consideration of, of financial disclosure isn't part of Tether. So if the starting point that the judge is looking at to validate or invalidate an agreement between the parties through the lens of Tether, then the Tether principles have to be applied. So when i read when i read the court of appeals decision i I read the court of appeals decision to to say that he was he misapplied the law in tether and that the agreement between the parties is binding right and that's and that's what the court of appeal is saying because we understand
0: that that's what the court of appeal is saying can we get to the what the court of appeal actually did when we know that they set out a framework and we know that they take tether and parts of Miglin and put mm-hmm. it together for their framework but um, if we go to sort of uh, their last uh, their evaluation of the assets and I think I made this point which is is, is it's exactly the same as one of the options that the trial judge uh, sets out in his reasons but he chooses the other one that's based on a different valuation date When I look at this, I'm trying to get my head around if the agreement between the parties had been taken very seriously and operationalized to its full extent, would I be correct to say that the only real matter that would be existing between the Andersons is the house and the valuation and to whether the equity in the house was 40 or 52 or 81, depending on date of valuations. Because when I go through this entire thing, there is an allocation of specific amounts to each party and an equalization as if there's no agreement here at all, as if the act is just having a full sway in terms of how it would be applied. But you have here on the ledger, you have her having a car of a certain value, him having a car of a certain value him having jewelry of five hundred dollars her having jewelry of seven thousand dollars if the agreement was actually in force wouldn't they just be keeping that personal property to themselves and that'd be off off book or off ledger for when we're trying to assess what the actual overall um obligations between them would be am i wrong about that
8: you're right because if if you're if you're strictly applying the agreement, the way it is written, that's exactly what the application is. Uh, I cannot comment on on the court of appeals' analysis on on the weight to give to the agreement, but my, my friend can. my My friend will speak to that. Um, if there's one thing I can add in terms of the way I read the decision, the way I read the decision is section 40. The way the Court of Appeals decision essentially has now created three ways that a party uh, can come to an agreement uh, in, in the province of Saskatchewan. Um, and one is you can do it under Section 38, which is statutorily, or if you apply the framework, which is set out in paragraph 58 of Anderson, um, that's a, a second way, which is you know the common law way of finding a binding agreement. And then the third way, which is still applicable, which is any agreement between the parties could be given any any, any weight. So what what the Court of Appeal in my opinion is trying to do is really trying to provide an analysis and and, and breakdown on what will constitute an agreement. And is there is there, are there differences in agreement in accordance with section 40? And that's, I think that's all they're trying to do. Because if you look at the analysis of the cases that are coming, there is no consistency on the application of what qualifies as an agreement and what, you know, which agreement should be given greater weight or which agreement shouldn't be given greater weight. So if they're applying Tether, then yeah, they're- but, what but they're,
3: you're mixing up two things. Uh, you know, which agreement is given greater weight is a question that is only answered after you've answered the anterior question, is this an agreement within the meaning of section 40? Because if it's not an agreement within the meaning of section 40, it's not given any weight because it's not taken into account. And there are, it seems to me, uh, according to the uh, Saskatchewan Court of Appeal, three types of agreement. One is that under ordinary contract law. Second, that which conforms with the requirements of tether and such agreements are capable of being considered under section 40, whereas ordinary uh, contracts which do not conform with tether are not to be considered under section 40. And then the third type of agreement is a contract which conforms to the requirements of Section 38, which which doesn't get you into 40 at all. So there, that's clear, isn't it?
8: Yes, that's that's correct. And I apply, I apologise for using the word weight. Um, what I what I meant by that was, within Section 40, the the court the Court of Appeal has basically created a framework for a, a binding a binding agreement, based on on tether and a non-binding agreement, which could mean any agreement between the parties, and it doesn't have to specifically meet the requirements of Tether. Uh, that's what I take it to mean. So what what they're saying is, to in order to qualify for an agreement, you have to meet the section of Tether. But in, in order for for to do an analysis on weight, the weight analysis should be the the Miglin analysis, because the Miglin analysis is is the analysis that is carried out. Once the parties have reached an agreement and, and then you go through to make a determination on should this agreement be afforded deference by the trier of fact, right? And and what are the factors we, we need to look at when determining the context of the agreement and the substance of the agreement and the change in circumstance of the agreement? So really that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to compartmentalize the agreement section with tether and then the weight section with with miglin
3: i'm going to weigh in briefly again i'm just baffled by how miglin gets in here at all because it's under the divorce act and it's and as my colleague justice Casira said it deals with matters which are prospective rather than retrospective what it seems to me that one can can say is that some of the same factors which inform the analysis in Miglin can also properly inform an analysis as to the weight to be given to a contract uh, or an agreement, pardon me, albeit an agreement which does not conform to the requirements or meet the requirements of 38. So it isn't so much that Miglin applies as the same kind, many of the same considerations in terms of being aware what the significance of what you're signing, the condition of the other party, um, you know, the financial condition, whether you're in a state of you know emotional turmoil or whatever. Those factors are common property speaking to both analyses, which is a little different from saying Miglin applies, which I find odd.
8: I, I think what I mean by that is Miglin stands for, for the proposition of what what is the legislative intent and how should, how should the court review an agreement between the parties and, and have it uh, be reviewed in um, being consistent with the legislative intent because if I, I found paragraph 82 uh, uh, of Miglin to be helpful and this is in tab three of our condensed um, brief of law
4: What does Miglin have to do with legislative intent about the Saskatchewan Act? Nothing. Well, nothing. It's but I mean you've just said Meglin tells us about legislative intent. It, what does it tell? What does it tell us about the legislative intent in the Saskatchewan Act? I, I, I don't see much.
8: Okay, I, I, and I, and and I can explain that. If you look at the starting analysis that the, the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal starts off with, it starts off with the fact that the family, uh, that the Family Property Act has been around since 1979, and that with that same act has permitted parties to apply Section 38 or Section 40. So, for for a significant period of time, there is a a. a the parties are granted autonomy over their affairs, and it doesn't. And the and the autonomy over their affairs doesn't have to be necessarily within the lens of section 38 and their strict requirements, and, and and legal counsel has to be involved. But it's also in in accordance with the arrangements and agreements between the parties. So, so that's that's what it is. It's, it's referencing. So there's an intent behind the Saskatchewan legislation that. Parties can come to an agreement on the issues between themselves as as long as there's some sort of substantial compliance with the legislation, right? And, and Section 40 goes on to say, you know, it doesn't even have to be a written agreement. It could be an oral agreement. So that's what I mean when I talk about Saskatchewan's legislative intent.
6: But doesn't, uh, you know, it's good that we're worried about st- uh, legislative intent in looking at a... Piece of provincial legislation, but paragraph four, section 40 talks about whatever weight it considers reasonable, uh, which I would have thought is the widest form of discretion that would be graded, granted to the trial judge. The way I read paragraph 58 of the Court of Appeals' decision, uh, importing a Miglin-type framework to this unfettered discretion, is to impose fetters. It effectively and results in the conclusion in paragraph 108 that the result of the uh, application is that the court should give the agreement great weight and that seems to me to be not respecting the unimpeded discretion in section 40. So uh, that's where I'm stuck is, how do you square uh, paragraph 58, 108 and section 40 of of the statute? Okay, thank you. So the first part
8: is Saskatchewan has definitive, definitively recognized if an agreement falls within Tether, it's a binding agreement. So under the common law, it, it's a binding agreement. Okay, so now when, when it went through the analysis, the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal, now that it's kind of squared away. Sorry, okay.
1: binding agreement, you're not talking about like a presumptively that's going to be the result in this case there is gonna be no division of property or it exempts it from the division of property. Sounds to me like you're talking about a section 38 agreement. I, the,
8: the reason why I refer it to as a binding agreement because it, it, in the trial judge's own decision in, in paragraph 117, one, um, this is in tab one of our condensed book, paragraph 36, the trial judge himself recognizes that a tether agreement is a binding agreement. So when he when he says in the, in the last sentence, while it is not an interspousal agreement or a binding agreement as recognized by Tether and Iverson, it may have a more limited effect here. So a tether agreement is a, is a, is a binding agreement, not in the legislative sense, but under the common law sense.
1: It, it seems to me, I think we have your submissions on tether. Uh, speaking for myself, I'm not finding it particularly helpful, and, and there are some other important issues that you need to address sure. uh, in this
8: case. So, the way the way I see the way I see the application of the Migling test is, is it, it's trying to create uniformity in in, in the application of this section uh, once once a, a once a binding agreement in accordance with Tether is found, and 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 the way we see each other is the Miglin framework is the embodiment of the policy goals of certainty, autonomy, and finality. And and those are are policy goals.
3: Okay, Um, I gotta come back to it. Um, The Divorce Act is under federal competence, federal jurisdiction. The um, Saskatchewan Family Property Act is under provincial competence and uh, property and civil rights in the province. And the same is true of all the other provinces, of course. Are you asking us, or perhaps are you uh, to endorse a view in which there is a uniformity in such matters across the country, uh, whatever the statute says, that somehow something which is derived from the divorce act in in a sense, is a framework that that operates in all jurisdictions with the possible exception of Quebec, uh, notwithstanding the particular provisions of the the legislation adopted by each of the legislatures.
8: Every legislature gives gives individual parties the ability to come to an agreement on their own. So they, 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 they give the parties the ability to enter into interspousal contracts or domestic contracts and so on, but then also reach an agreement on their own. So I I think that already exists. It's simply just a matter of how do we, how do we create a unified framework that if parties want to come to an agreement on their own, how is that issue dealt with? And and one of the ways we, we saw it was and, and this kind of goes into an access to justice, is because if we only look at from, from a, a presumptively binding agreement in accordance with the legislation, then everyone needs to have a lawyer to have a finality to their agreement. Under this framework, there, the finality can be achieved without the necessity of, of legal counsel being present. And And one of the issues that was raised was Fundamentally, well, what if the parties only just have a truck, or what if the parties have just something small? Do they then ha- need the? Do they then need to go through Mr. the the requirements of something like section Mr. 38? Shaw,
1: perhaps I can move you. I mean, I think we have your submissions on these points. Perhaps I can move you to this case. Your position is that the agreement should have been um, respected. It still brings us back to the issue of what the Court of Appeal did here by picking a 2015 date and setting aside the trial judge's uh, evaluation that the house should be uh, valued as of the date of trial. Why is valuation of the house as of the date of trial, given the contributions to mortgages and all the rest, why is that not in keeping with the agreement?
8: I I think I will defer that question to my friend and and I will let him speak.
1: Thank you.
9: Good morning, Justices. Good
1: morning. You can go ahead.
9: Thank you. so, the difficulty I think that the Court of Appeal had when determining valuation um is that there were no values attached to any of the property at the time that the agreement was uh, made between the parties. Um, the trial judge um, valued the property does as that a
1: matter that does that matter if you're excluding everything but the
9: house um it doesn't it doesn't um so what I would suggest in this case is that in Saskatchewan the the family home is presumptively equally equally divisible, um, so the fact that that wasn't in the agreement uh, on the date it was signed isn't really of huge consequence. Um, I think because the trial judge had the two different dates in his violation in his in his uh, decision that the uh, court of appeal simply if they decide that the agreement reflects the intent of spirit and spirit of the parties, that that date is closest in proximity to the July date in 2015 when they executed uh, the agreement. So that is why I think that there was the difference in the valuation dates. And it was referred to earlier, I think, because the husband's corporation went down in, in value, that the Court of Appeal couldn't use the adjudication date either. Um, so then the risk would be that the Court of Appeal would have to send the matter back to trial to determine what the value of the corporation was at the time of the July 2015 agreement in order to uh, divide the property in accordance with the
4: agreement. Can you, can you explain that point about the value of his business? Because as I read the agreement and as I understand the relationship between the parties, Ms. Anderson wanted nothing to do with his business. She didn't want to risk her own money on the business, and in the agreement it says she forfeits any right to the increase in value in the business, and yet the Court of Appeal says at 133 that the date that they choose and the method they choose takes into account the variability of Mr. Anderson's corporate interests. Why is that fair under, under the agreement?
9: I think it is completely accurate that uh, the wife didn't want anything to do with the business. The business was at a higher value at the time of the agreement. So in the quarter of appeal, appeal refers to um, take into account the, the value. I think basically just by choosing a date as close in proximity to the time of the agreement that it reflects the, 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 the closest value that, that, that property had at the time the agreement was made between the parties. But,
4: it, but why not, if you took the adjudication date, and just leave the business out of it, wouldn't you be respecting the terms of the agreement? It's a a question, I'm not challenging you, but it just seems to me to be odd. if If you're arguing, generally speaking, that there was an agreement and its terms should be respected, both in regards of the mortgage payment that she seems to get a windfall on, and on the variability in the corporate interest, which she seems to get a windfall on, we're departing from the terms of the agreement?
9: I, I think that's a fair comment. I, I don't know that it's actually departing from the terms of the agreement. Um, and that kind of goes back to, to Section 40 uh, as a whole. Like uh, in our submissions, essentially, it, it speaks to two classes of agreements under that. So the one would be the tether agreements, and those are the ones that meet all the formal requirements. And then there'd just be the agreements between spouses. And those agreements might not reflect the peculiar nature of contracts executed post separation when a tether agreement um, is found to exist the court can give a great weight in our view that weight puts it on par to a section 38 agreement Um, in that case in our view um, section 24 of the family property act is triggered and exempts that tether agreement from the distributive regime in in the family property act and in that case in our view the court of appeal was tasked with finding what the values were of all the property at the time that agreement was executed. And, th- and that's, what, that's what they were forced to use. In sir, argument.
5: I'm trying to understand why you can say that it should be 2015, the, 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 the year of the agreement, for the House when the parties themselves in the agreement decided to postpone uh, the dealing of the House. They did not even agree on a value They said we will have a real estate uh, valuation done. They did not even agree on the valuation date which will be used. And as you know, in that type of expertise, sometimes this is the issue. What is the valuation date? So there was no agreement. They decided to postpone this because the real estate market was not good at the time. And Monsieur continued to pay uh, the mortgage and the taxes. So what is the rationale? To say that it should be 2015 for the house. Uh,
9: that's a fair comment, and that's something that I considered when we reviewing um, all the materials. I think that one avenue the court of appeal could have done was send the matter back to trial, just to determine what the value of the house. Yeah, would but have the parties been. agreed
5: at trial. The judge says that the parties at trial agreed that the value to be uh, given to that house should be 417,000 in 2017. There, is a, there was an agreement at trial, so why are you returning the file?
9: That's, that's a fair comment. Um, but if we're looking at a situation where the Court of appeal says, listen, these parties have a binding agreement. Um, if they're gonna use the adjudication date, then they're departing from the terms of the agreement by doing that. Well, so, and that, I, I well, think that may I have right. been alive. I, mean,
1: I, I guess I'm having, I, I think you're hearing, we're all having some difficulty. If the Court of Appeal accepts that there's, the substance of the agreement has to be given some weight, then really there were two options. One is to say that the agreement said they each keep what they own, but the House needed to be dealt with. And given that the House had not been dealt with and that their mortgage were being paid and so on, I think there would have had to be some reason why to put aside the judge's determination that the value of the equity of the house at trial was $82,000. So that's one option, to actually say, well, the agreement said the only real matter outstanding for valuation is the house. And then the question is, well, what date for the house and why was the trial judge wrong in looking at the, at the trial date? The other option if the the court of appeal didn't want to give full effect to the agreement and rather was looking at valuation dates closest to the agreement date, would be 2015. But then again, why would they pick the date for the value of the house for 2015 when clearly it hadn't been valued in 2015? Mortgage payments were still being made by uh, by, uh, the appellant And there's no rationale given for for going behind the trial judge's choice of the trial date value of the house. So that's where it seems to me that there were two options to go down and I don't see the reasoning for departing from either one of those.
9: Well, I think of the Court of Appeal decision, there's reference in paragraph uh, 111 and this is, this is kind of ancillary to the pension discussion, but, but the, the, the court of appeal acknowledges that there's gonna be kind of ups and downs in those amounts. Um, but then at that point, curiously, she doesn't deal with it any in any other way other than that, just by saying that paragraph three and four of the agreement um, expressly considers that and says none of that's to be shared after that point. So I agree that there's a certain inequity by using the 2015 date, December 2015 date, in relation to the mortgage contributions made the uh, post execution of the agreement. And I think this was something that, that the trial judge was alive to. It was an issue raised at trial um, by the appellant with the claim for occupation rent. And, and I think that um, there being an, an equitable consideration at play there if the agreement was enforced. Unfortunately, um, when the matter was appealed to the court of appeal, there wasn't a, a cross appeal on it. The the dismissal of the under, of the uh, occupational rent claim um, wasn't appealed, and, and the court of appeal effectively had that tool taken away from them by it not being subject to appeal, and they couldn't consider the equitable remedy in that circumstance.
4: I'm not sure Excuse that that's me? the case. Oh, pardon yeah, me. You no, go ahead. Okay. You go ahead.
0: I I'm just I'm I'm so very confused as to what your position might have been um, in terms of the actual distribution of the assets, I follow the Court of Appeal and let's say all of their legal analysis is correct. They come at the end of paragraph 120 to say that this is an agreement and then go on to say, I see no basis for the 2015 agreement not to govern the division of the family's uh, property. So that would suggest to me that what the um, exercise would be is to go through and start with the agreement and allocate according to the agreement. So all of the property that came in under clause one, like those houses would be exempt. And that is in fact done on the spreadsheet that the court of appeal uses. But when we go through uh, sections in the agreement, two and three and four, there is no giving credit to those actual stipulations in the agreement there is an evaluation perhaps as if there was no agreement and the uh, family law of property act just applied to do an equalization and so i'm very confused about how the actual number of $5,000 is is dealt with, even on that basis. I see an inconsistency with the statement that the agreement has a strong basis, and then it's not actually used in a manner that makes sense to me in the evaluation. And there's even, like if you look at Clause 4, where it says um, that any, I I guess, um, increments, in all property assets, income, pensions, benefits, debts, debts. so this would cover Mr. Anderson's debt, um, will be uh, dealt with as of the date of May 11th, and then the Court of Appeal doesn't even pick May 11th, they do a valuation uh, day some six months later. So can you explain to me why the numbers make sense based on the uh, legal conclusions reached by the Court of Appeal? Because you're not asking us to change the numbers.
9: No, we're not asking you to change the numbers. And, and again, I think it was just a logistical reality that when the Court of Appeal was tasked with dealing with this, um, there just wasn't numbers of from the, the, the separation agreement date. So the numbers that the Court of Appeal had closest to that date, was the December numbers. And, and you're right, the, the paragraph you referenced um, deals with debts as well. So if you're enforcing the agreement, that would likely exclude the mortgage, which is why in our view, that a claim for uh, the occupational rent claim should have been uh, appealed or a claim for unjust enrichment introduced at trial.
1: I'm not understanding that exclude the mortgage. You're looking at the equity in the home, are you not?
9: You would You would think but the way it's drafted in the agreement, it just says debt, right? So, so debt it's and equity, because the equity, if you treat the mortgage like an investment, it'd be incre- an increase in that as well. So conceivably, something that could have been done to give credit um, to Mr. Anderson would be to determine what contributions he made um, towards the mortgage during that time and, and award that to him, and that would still be consistent with the
4: agreement. Is it right to take such a formalistic view of, well, the occupational rent point wasn't appealed and thus the f- one is foreclosed uh, looking at that? The, the trial judge, correctly I think, in relying on the rules in 21, uh, dealing with the distribution of family property, cited specifically I'm at 27 when he was dealing with the remedy specifically 211 sorry 212c two that a court can make any other order that it considers fair and equitable and 213q for the purposes of subsection 2 the previous one the court shall have regard to the following any other relevant fact or circumstance so it strikes me that the windfall that of the mortgage payments to Ms. Anderson remained on the table, insofar as it might create an outcome that would be unfair, in, and 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 so that this business about well, it wasn't appealed, and so it's not before the court. I'm not sure that that's the way in which this kind of statute should be approached. It's not the spirit in which the statute was enacted the terms of the statute suggest otherwise uh, and to, to what, what are you what are your thoughts there i mean the, the trial judge relied explicitly on these powers
9: well i i think that's a fair comment obviously i think there are overall equities at play um, throughout the application of, of the family property act but i think some of that kind of hinges on whether or not that that we believe that section 40 um, empowers judges to elevate the status of Section 40 agreements so those akin to Section 38 agreements, because if it did, then that would exclude the distribution regime from the FBA from from those agreements, in, in our view.
4: I don't think that's correct, but you, you, you'll tell me that I'm misreading the, the Act. 213A which is not dealing with interspousal agreements, says that for the purposes of subsection two, which is the the distribution of family property, the court shall have regard to the following, any written agreement between the spouses. Well, here we've got one, and it's not an interspousal agreement, and the court has to have regard to it when it, it doesn't exempt the property, there I'd agree with you, it's not an interspousal agreement, but the court shall take that into account. So, so, and it looks to me like that the court of appeal gives it great weight. But one wonders if it st- stuck. It, it it stuck to the terms of the agreement to which it was. It a recognized it existed, and b decided to give it great weight. It's, it. It seems a sort of a paradox in your argument. You're arguing for the agreement, but against its terms.
9: Well, I don't know if we're arguing against against its terms. Um, I, I don't have the Full Family Property Act uh, before me. Um, my understanding is that uh, Section 38 agreements um, are excluded from from Section
4: 24.1, but I don't have the. Uh, well, the that's Act right. To confirm that. I, as I said to you, I actually have the whole act in front of me. The it, property dealt with in an interspousal contract is exempt under 241, but I'm referring you to 21.3a, often litigated in Saskatchewan, as it is across the country, its, it's equivalents across the country, that says, and it makes sense that it, even if it's not an interspousal agreement, which exempts property from equal division it's to be taken into account well
9: in my view in our view that that's a fact that we take into account when making the determination as to whether or not there is a binding agreement but uh, i think your comments are fair in that regard
3: i don't mean to be flippant but if you if you don't consider it you don't take it into account right i mean um the 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 and i come back very briefly to the whole idea of that a tether compliant agreement so in effect the saskatchewan court of appeal is reading 21 3a which reads any written agreement between the spouses as being any written agreement between the spouses which conforms to the requirements as established under tether. And then that carries forward into the exercise of discretion under 40. That's the only way I can make any sense out of what the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal Set out in its reasons.
9: Uh, I think that's uh, that's that's fair. I mean, I, I think there's a lack of clarity um, just in in the decision as well. In that regard, um, the way we read the decision was that what what the court of appeal allows for is for you know, agreements between spouses without independent legal advice to be elevated to the same status as section thirty eight agreements but that doesn't mean that other agreements between spouses that don't meet the tether requirements are not gonna be given any weight or, or consideration. It just may mean that they're given less weight or will be given less weight than, uh, than tether agreements. Well,
1: looks like you don't need those extra three minutes. Is there anything else?
9: Um, No, I think I covered everything. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Any reply?
2: Thank you. Yes, I would speak just briefly on the point that my friend brought up, the statement that the appellant should have cross-appealed on the issue of occupational rent. I just want to say that the the appellant agrees with what the trial judge did with respect to occupational rent, but it's important to note that in the trial judge's analysis on occupational rent, part of his reasons for rejecting the appellant's claim was that he had determined that using date of adjudication values rendered that claim uh, unnecessary. And, And we don't disagree with that, so it wouldn't have made sense from our view to appeal, from a decision we agreed with
4: what well, would have been a double dip if he'd gotten both the occupational rent and the credit for the mortgage payments absolutely I
2: agree and it was only after the Court of Appeals decision changed that that then without addressing the occupation rent that I think there became a problem and I think that's why the Court of Appeal uh, needs or any court of appeal needs to be careful on these kinds of family law cases where there are moving pieces and different issues that. impact
0: But you each have other. absolutely no difficulty with a date of evaluation of the home being the trial date; it, it creates no occupational rent issue in your mind.
2: Exactly. All yes, right. The
0: fairness concerns are.
2: Okay. Yes. No. Absolutely. Thank you.
1: Court will um, take this. Uh, case under consideration were adjourned until tomorrow morning, 9.30.